Amen. We'll be doing a second scripture reading today, so I'd ask if you would, in honor of the reading of God's word, to please stand. These words come from the book of Ecclesiastes, the words of God, which read, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we just ask again that you would be our teacher through your spirit. Father, break down our biases. Break down the blind spots and help us to see where we are not reflecting Christ as we ought. And Father, I pray for the one here today who may not know Christ whatsoever. I just pray for them that they would hear the gospel in the text that we are about to look to and see that Christ as we just sang, is to be treasured above all else, for he is our hope and our God. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1885, a New York reporter wrote that St. Paul, Minnesota was, and I quote, another Siberia, unfit for human habitation in winter. I might surprise you all. Upon reading this, the St. Paul Chamber of Commerce were offended by this accusation, and they sought to defend themselves. I don't know why, because it's true. But in response, they decided to prove not only was St. Paul a perfectly, how do we say this word, habitable place, there we go, in winter, but its citizens would even thrive throughout the winter months. How did they try to prove this? By launching the St. Paul Winter Carnival in February of 1886. The event started small with some bobsledding, don't you know, some ice horse racing, and some crowning of King Boreas I, who would live in, of course, a majestic ice castle. He beat Elsa to it by over 100 years. The castle was 106 feet high. This had 35,000 blocks of ice, and in grand total, the cost to construct it back in this day was $5,000, which was quite the pretty penny. As we said, it began small, but this event continued 
over the years to draw in visitors from all over the world, becoming what it is today, which is quite the massive event. Well, how massive? Quite massive. For instance, in 1992, do you know how much it cost for this event to build this ice castle that stood seven stories high? $1.1 million. It was ice. It was consisted of blocks weighing over 500 pounds each. And, this, and the Ice Palace chairman, Dan Stoles, he had this to say about it. He said, this is about Minnesota pride. This is just a phenomenal day, he said, that we've been talking about for so long. And it was a truly phenomenal day with so much energy, so much time, and so much resources being poured into this massive ice castle, which was a wonderful, magnificent structure for everybody to come and see. However, as wonderful as it is and was, eventually, as we know, winter, thankfully, does not last, and spring comes. And what happens to ice castles in spring is they become puddle castles. They melt. All of that work, then, is gone. All of the money spent evaporated. All the beauty, all the majesty, all of the wonder of such wonderful ice castles is brought to naught. James 4.14 says this, church, What is your life? For you are a mist, a vapor that appears for just a little time and then vanishes. And that's what Jesus is telling us in Matthew chapter 6. He's warning us not to spend our lives living for things that melt. It's pointless. The cold, harsh truth is that everything, as Solomon just told us, under the sun is vanity. It melts. It's worthless. It does not last. All of our dreams then, all of our accomplishments, they're just a miss. They're going to vanish. Some of our miss might last a little longer than the person's nexus, but you know what? They all result in the same vapor being gone. And so to spend our lives then constructing ice castles is a gigantic waste of time. It's actually a tragedy, right? The author Ecclesiastes, he puts it this way. I have seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. King Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, came to experience every good thing this world had to offer. This guy was so rich, he would make Amazon's Jeff Bezos look like a beggar. And, and that's the richest guy in the world, all right? Bezos is worth right now an estimate net worth of $177 billion. But Solomon says, oh, that's pocket change. Because if you, if you look at all the gold Solomon had and you added that up to today's standard, Solomon would be worth roughly $2.2 trillion. I think he's got him beat there a little bit, don't you? Solomon was not only rich, but Solomon was powerful. He was a king. And because he was both rich and powerful, he could experience whatever joy he wanted that this world had to offer. He built these massive gardens that if I described, it just blow your mind. They were, they were unbelievable. He had his own personal zoos where he would bring in all sorts of extravagant animals from all over the place. If it was his hobby, he was winning at it. He had, he had everything he needed to make his hobbies come true. When it came to romance, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And at the end of his life, you know what he came to realize? It was all ice. It was all vanity. Vanity. All is vanity, he wrote. And at the end of the book of Proverbs, 
the great, 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 or book of Ecclesiastes, I should say, the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus, here's what he wrote. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them, but let, let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. You who are young, be happy while you are young. Let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart, whatever your eyes see. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So then, banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. Do you see what Solomon is saying here? It's pretty straightforward. He's saying, I spent my whole life building ice castles. It's, it's melted. It's meaningless. The darkness of the end of my life is coming upon me. It doesn't last. Yes, they look marvelous. Yes, they look majestic. Yes, they're quite impressive. But make no mistake, they don't last. They're meaningless. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is expanding upon what King Solomon touches upon, which is this. There is a castle we can invest in which never melts away. There is a type of treasure that does not decay, for it is a treasure from Christ's kingdom, his eternal kingdom. And so, if we are wise then, we will not invest in the kingdom of this world. It's going away. It's going to be gone. It's ice. But the kingdom of God is more like diamond. And so why wouldn't we invest in that? The question then we have to ask is, after we agree we should invest in that, is, well, how do we do that? And that's what we're going to be answering this morning from Matthew chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, where we will see how we can know if we are kingdom seekers, right? The end of our passage ends with Jesus saying, seek ye first the kingdom of God, right? That's the imperative. That's his thesis. So how can we know if we are kingdom seekers? Three ways. We have the right treasures, the right troubles, and the right trusts. Let's look at this first one. Look with me in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But instead lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then look down at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's pretty straightforward here. Jesus is saying that what we treasure indicates who our God is. What we live for is our God. And do you see in verses 22 and 23 where Jesus is talking about the eye being the lamp of the body? Well, what's he saying here? What's he getting at? Here's what he's saying. In the Bible, the heart isn't like we Westerners think of it. It's not like, you know, our feelings and our emotions. That's typically how we think about it. You know, you wear your heart on your sleeve. But in the Bible, the heart wasn't that. The heart, yeah, it included the emotions, but it was the mind, it was the intellect, it was the feelings, and it was the affections. It was the whole being, the whole man. That's what the heart is in the Bible. And so, the heart is a metaphor for the whole person. And as James says then, out of an abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, which means that what is in your heart is revealed by what comes out of it in the actions of your body, in your words, in your talk. And so with this in mind, let's look at these verses 23 through 23, because at first read, they can be kind of confusing. It's like, what's Jesus talking about here? The eye is the lamp of the body. Our eyes are healthy. If our body here is a full light, 
Like, it kind of sounds like fortune cookie stuff at first when you first have a quick reading at it, but that's not what he's doing, right? He's not just saying, eat your carrots and you'll see better. There's some very serious stuff going on here. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. I think what he's saying is, the eye brings light into it, which allows the body to see and move about in the physical world, right? Like, light comes in, I can see things. My body, which can't see, right, is guided by the light that comes to my eye, and I can move around without bumping into stuff. And if our eyes are healthy and working properly, we don't have any problems there. However, if my eye is unhealthy, right, if they don't work, I can't see. Duh, right, pretty straightforward so far here. And if we can't see, then it doesn't matter if the rest of our body is in the sun. We could be laying on the beach down in Florida and our bodies are soaking up the sun, but if our eyes aren't working properly, we're going to need somebody to guide us around. We're not going to have a clue where we're going. All right, now with this in mind, look with me at the last part of verse 23. Look what he says. If then the light within you is darkness, how great that darkness. Okay, stick with me here. Go back to the metaphor of the heart that we started with. and Let's try to put this whole thing together. If the heart is full of darkness, this means then that I'm going to live my life for the things of this world. I'm going to live for the ice castles, for all the stuff that's melting, all right? That, if that's my ultimate heart's desire, that's what I'm going to be oriented towards, Okay. And if my heart's desire is for things that melt, then here's Jesus' point. It's like you're living as if you're blind. Yeah, you, you're moving around the world, you're seeing things, but you're, you're not getting it. This stuff is passing away. You're living for stuff that's not going to be here very much longer. And this is a very tragic reality that Jesus is warning us against. See, here's how this works. So many people have been exposed to the light of the gospel, but it's never really penetrated their hearts right? It's this surface level understanding. Yeah, I understand Jesus is Lord. Yeah, you know, I said a prayer, whatever, whatever. All right, went to church on Sunday. I'm good. I'm going to live my life, right? It's never penetrated into their heart of hearts. And a lot of these people are deluded because they think it has when it hasn't. And how do we know that it hasn't? Because they are still wandering about this world as if they were blind to the truth that it's a world that's melting away. That's Jesus's point here. Yes, intellectually they understand it, but it doesn't really affect them. It doesn't really change their perception, which then changes how they move around, right? If you can't see things, it's going to change how I move around. I'm going to be bumping into stuff. I'm going to need some help. I might need to see an eye dog, right? A cane, things like that. But you know what? It's the same way for them. Though they intellectually understand it, they are still living for the things of this world because the things of this world are what their hearts treasure, not the things of the world to come. And as Jesus points out, if the light of the gospel has penetrated my heart, then what's going to happen? It's going to radically shape my behavior. It's going to shape the way I see the world, and I'm going to move about rightly. Now, perhaps you notice that I only gave you two options here, right? It, it seems kind of unfair. Why is it either or? Can't it be a little bit of both? Well, the reality is Jesus makes it either or. Look at verse 24. What does he say? No one, that means no one, that means you, that means me. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. There you have it. It is either or. So the question we have to ask then, how do we know if we're living for the either or for the or, right? How do we figure that out? It's a good question. For that, we have to do some cardiological reflection, all right? When I was a kid, 
Sometimes we would make these baller snow forts, like my brothers are here, they know what I'm talking about. We'd make these awesome massive snow forts. We lived next to a church, they'd come and plow it, there'd be these massive hills, and we'd dig all these holes inside them and stuff. We'd build them up and we'd have some snowball fights and stuff, but we'd make, these, we'd make some pretty awesome forts, all right? However, I remember many times when, when spring started coming, it started warming up, and those forts started melting. And so what do we do? We try to make them last. We'd reinforce the walls. We'd collapse a tunnel over here, right? Because once it starts melting, those tunnels aren't going to last. Those things will be the first things to go. So you fill them in, right? You reinforce the areas and the structures, stuff like that. But at a certain point, we realized it became a total lost cause. We gave up on those snow forts, right? And we knew that we'd have to wait till next year. And even though we did make some pretty awesome forts, I don't ever remember us once being just like totally crushed about our forts being wrecked. We're just like, ah, whatever, you know, that was fun while it lasted. Well, next year we'll get onto it, right? We didn't go around all depressed, you know, during summer, and my mom's like, what's wrong with you? Well, oh, my fort's gone, you know. Was, we really put a lot of work into that fort. I sure miss it. You know, it wasn't like that. And why not? Because we knew it was temporary, right? It w- we knew it was going to be gone soon. It wasn't going to last. So how about you? When it comes to that special career, that dream job that melts away, when it happens, does it crush you? How do you respond? When your health takes a turn for the worst, are you depressed? Are you defeated? Does it sap the joy of your life? Or do you respond as a kingdom citizen response, realizing that this life is not our true life? This life, what is it? It's a seed that is here for a little while, dies, is planted into the ground, and then bursts forth with brand new life. In fact, it bursts forth with the life we were created for, intended for. You get the idea here? A good way, then, to see if something is your master is this. How do you respond when that thing is taken away from you? Or how do you respond when that thing is even threatened to be taken away from you? Does it send you into a tizzy? You start having panic attacks and freaking out about this stuff? Or are you like Job, which is the Lord gives and the Lord takes? Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is the response of a kingdom citizen. The last part of verse 24 gives us another spiritual cardiological exam here, and there's no simple way to put this. It has to do with your wallet. Why does the church always talk about money? Well, you know what? We talk about money when the Bible talks about money. That's it. And and here's the reality is Jesus talks about money a lot. It keeps coming up in Matthew. Read through it this next week. It's, it keeps popping up. And it's not because the church is just, you know, we want your money. All no, it's because money is a direct corollary with how greedy we are. It has a direct, it's a direct indicator for what our God is. And so we have to ask ourselves some hard questions. How do you manage your finances? How do you even think about your finances? Do you see your money as a means of having your best life now? Or do you see it as a means of storing up for your best life to come? I hate to break it to you, but if you think that simply checking the 10% box on your giving means that money isn't your God, then I'm sorry to tell you, that is absolutely biblically wrong. That is not necessarily the case, right? Don't get me wrong. 10% is a great place to start, and the Bible gives us suggestions on these things, right? There's some wisdom in that. However, it's not a law. It's more of a principle. It's a principle or a helpful suggestion to get us started when we start giving, However, the reality is, nowhere in the Bible does it tell Christians that checking the 10% box means that God is your God, not money. It just doesn't work that way. Whether we tithe 
or 90% of our income, the scary truth of the human heart is that money can still be our idol no matter the percentage that we're giving. That's the case. And it's the case because in our hearts, what we will inevitably do without the gospel penetrating our hearts and radically shaping and changing us is we will say, all right, God, how much do I got to do? How much do I got to do? What do I owe you? And then we'll say, okay, here you go. That's yours. And this all over here, this is mine. Stay out of it. And if we do that, what's the reality then? Is God our God? Or is this our God? This is our God. And that's why the Bible talks so much about money. It reveals what's in the human heart. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says this, Each one must give how? As he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And if you just say, well, you know what? I've decided in my heart to give a dollar a year. I'm good. Check the box here. No, like you're not thinking about this verse rightly. The whole point of this is to examine the idols of the heart. It's to examine who our true God is. When preachers typically start talking about money in the church, what we instinctively do is we start to think, oh, you know what? This doesn't really apply to me. Why? Because I can think of a whole lot more people who got a whole lot more money than I do, right? They've, they just do. They have to decide, all right, well, do I want to buy a boat or do I want to buy, you know, another vacation, all those sorts of things, right? And we start to think, you know what, I'm not rich. These people over here, everybody else is rich. You see the cars they drive? See the house they live in? They better listen up on this message, right? But not me. That's how we instinctively think when money comes up. But here's the reality. Every single one of us in this room, every single one of us in this room, is ridiculously rich by the world's standards, by the standards of human history. We're ridiculously rich, right? I mean, you don't even have to look back through human history. You can even look at other, some other parts of the world and see, like, look at like, all the wonderful things we have. We have running water. We have toilets. Like, this is, this is remarkable. <laughs> How many people in human history had these things, Right? The truth is, as Americans living in this time in history, we are all little kings and queens. Every single one of us. And so the question is, what are you doing with your kingly wealth? How are you managing it? Is it used to pad your personal comforts? Or are you using it for the kingdom that is coming? You want to know one of the best indicators for whether or not you're doing that? Does your giving affect your lifestyle? Does it? Are there luxuries in this life that you go without because you know there's something else that's more valuable? Or you check the box. You give just enough where it's like, won't really affect anything. Might not get pizza one time this year. If so, Hear Jesus' warning. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In 1992, just four years after the end of World War I, Germany's once thriving economy came to a complete halt because the Allies had this genius idea after they defeated Germany was to put these massive 
reparations upon the German people to make them pay back the countries who lost so much money in the war. And it absolutely devastated the German economy. And so in response, the German government came up with a really brilliant idea, which was to just start printing off money. Think of another government that thinks that's a brilliant idea. However, what happened was this sent the German economy into hyperinflation to the point that the German currency basically became kindling for the fireplace. That's all it was basically good for. Now, I want you to think for a second. Imagine somebody who had worked their whole life as a German citizen, accumulating all of this German currency, and basically overnight, it was just gone. It was a vapor. It was there for a second, and boom, overnight, it was worthless. How devastated would you feel? Let me ask you another question. If you were a German living at this time, and you somehow knew beforehand, years ahead, maybe, maybe a decade ahead, maybe five years ahead, you knew this was going to happen, would you still keep all of your currency in the German currency? No, you wouldn't do that. Of course you wouldn't do that. You would be looking to trade it for, for gold or some other currency that you knew was going to last the coming economic collapse. And so this is the idea Jesus has in mind in Matthew 6. Look what he says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But instead lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Don't lay up your treasures in a place where hyperinflation can turn it into fire kindling overnight. Put it into God's bank, where it's not going to fade. It's not going to pass away. And so, church, we have, a, we have guaranteed insider information here from God himself that the currency of this world is moments away from becoming fire kindling. Literally, too, if you read the last part of Revelation. And we have a limited opportunity then to trade it in for God's heavenly currency that's not going to rust, it's not going to decay, and nobody's going to be able to steal it. And so how often do we live our lives as if we're in darkness, right? As if this truth is not reality. Forget it all the time. How often do we go around like Schmeagol or Gollum from Lord of the Rings, gripping on to the melting things of this world because it's our precious? We do. How often are we like Demas, who deserted Paul? Why? Because he loved the things of this world too much. When instead, we should love the things of the world to come and be wise and use our temporary melting possessions to accumulate treasures that will last forever. 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19 says this, Command those who are rich in this present world, that's us, okay? That's everybody here. This is us, all right? Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to be good, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. That's to give, okay? Verse 19, in this way, what will they do? They will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Kingdom, kingdom seekers have right treasures, but secondly, they have right troubles. Look at verses 25 through 27. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? 
Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Of which, and which of you can be, of being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? In Greek mythology, there's a guy named Sisyphus, right? And he upset the gods. And so what they did to Sisyphus was they said, all right, you know what you're going to do? You're going to push this boulder up this hill for all of eternity. He's like, okay, pushed it up to the top. And the second it got to the top, they made so the boulder would roll right back down to the bottom. And so up and down, up and down, up and down. That's what Sisyphus was condemned to do for all of eternity, right? It was a huge waste of time and energy. It didn't accomplish anything other than tire him out. Church, this is us in our worry. Not only do we accomplish nothing by pushing the massive boulder of worry up the hill, over, and then as it goes down the hill, up the hill, down the hill, up, it just, it's just tiring us out. It just stresses us out. It doesn't accomplish a single thing. And so why do it? Why sit and worry and stress about things that are totally beyond our control? Why worry about things we can't change? Psalm 139.16 says this. This is helpful for understanding this, why we shouldn't worry. The psalmist writes, Your eyes saw my unformed body. And what does he say next? All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Every single day is written in God's book before they came to be. Do you see what the psalmist is saying? He's saying the same thing Jesus is saying in verse 27, which is that worry is wasted energy. It's fretting about things that are completely beyond our control. Why? Because every one of our days is written in God's book well before they came to be. And look, I'm not saying you should go play in traffic. That's not the point here, right? But the point is this, that if you decide to go play in traffic, that was already written in God's book. He knew when the day of your death was coming. He knows it. And this means that for the child of God, you know what it means? It means that you are 100% invincible until the day of your death. You thought about that before? You are 100% invincible until you're not, and God says, time to come home. Which means you aren't going to die a single day, a single year, a single minute even, before God ordained you to do so. So why sit and worry and fret about it? It's silly. It's pointless. It's, just gonna, it's like pushing the boulder. It's not going to accomplish a single thing. What then is the point of clinging to things of this world? What is the point of holding on to things that aren't going to last? And why do we do it? Well, we do it because we all play the what-if game, right? We speculate about what tomorrow might bring, about what a week might bring. Okay? I, uh, I used to have two massive tubs of computer parts, massive tubs of computer parts. I mean, there was everything from the early 90s in there to 2000s to, you know, there's just lots of stuff in there. And it finally one day became one tub. And that was a difficult process because I played the what-if game. What if I run into somebody who needs one of those big, massive, floppy disk drives? You kids don't know what I'm talking about, right? You know, some of you guys don't know what I'm talking about. What if I run into somebody who needs that floppy disk drive? I'll be able to show up with a cape and save the day with it. Because, heaven forbid, they have to go on eBay and buy one for like $10, right? But, right, we play the what-if game. And finally, I was like, okay, forget the what-if game. Get rid of this stuff. You haven't touched it in like a decade. It's gone, okay? But that's how we often think. How often 
are we then like the foolish rich man in Luke chapter 12, who what did he do with his barns once they were full? He said, I know what I'll do. I'm going to tear them down. I'm going to build bigger barns. And what does God say back to him? You fool. For this night, your very life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Church, the things of this world are melting away like snow in the springtime. And so why futilely fret and stress over them as they are melting in our very hands? Why not trade in these melting treasures in for everlasting treasures from the world to come? Why not trade in our troubles then for a trust in a God who is worth trusting and he happens to be a God also who endured our greatest trouble, which leads us to our final point. Kingdom seekers have right treasures, they have right troubles, and finally, they have right trust. Not only does God feed us, as verse 26 points out, not only does God clothe us, as verses 28 through 30 points out, but God is our loving and caring Heavenly Father, as verse 32 points out. And because we can call him Father, you know what that means? That means that our greatest trouble of all has been defeated. It's been vanquished. And why? On the night before Jesus died, what did he do? He went to a garden to pray. Why? Because he looked and he saw the great trouble that laid before him, and he trembled. The trouble he saw was the wrath of God that you and I deserved, that would be poured out in full upon him. On the cross, the sin of the entire world was nailed to Christ, who then suffered, not partially, but the full force of God's divine wrath and fury. And why? Well, because it was the punishment that had to be paid out. The wages of sin is death. It was the price for sin that you and I can never pay back. Not in, not in a million lifetimes of accumulating stuff. We could never pay it back. And yet Christ, the one, the only one who could ever pay it, and the one who did not deserve this penalty, the wrath of God, what did he do? He suffered it for us so that you and I might be called the sons and daughters of the living God. And so is God's children. If God gave up his son, Christ, for us, as Romans says, will he not give us all things? What's the answer to that? Yes, he will. He will give us all things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. And so our greatest trouble, the wrath of God, no longer remains upon us. So why do we worry about a thing? That's the only thing to worry about. Right? When I first looked at this text, I was like, what's going on here? We're not supposed to be anxious. We're not supposed to worry. But here's Jesus in the garden. What is he doing? He looks pretty worried. He's sweating, you know, he's sweating like drops of blood. But that's a right worry. Why? Because he was stressed and worried over the wrath of God, which is what every sinner must and should rightly be when they see the massive amount of their sin and the waiting judgment that lies behind it. But because Christ 
bore our greatest trouble, the wrath of God upon him, himself. That means we don't have to worry at all. What a marvelous reason then we have to trade in the melting treasures of this world for the everlasting treasures of the world to come. What a reason we have then to trade our troubles for Christ's wonderful triumph. And what a marvelous reason we have to trust our Heavenly Father who spared not his, who spared, gave us His only Son. Let me read this from Romans 8. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Praise be to God for our greatest trouble, being defeated in Christ. And what a marvelous reason we have to trust him. Father, we thank you for this text. Lord, I just pray that by your grace, we would be kingdom seekers whose ultimate treasure is Christ. Not the silly things of this world, which don't last. Help us to hear the words of Solomon, to hear the warning of a life lived for vanity. Help us to, as Solomon says, to remember our creator in the days of our youth so that when troubles come, they might not break us. And that when our troubles come, we will remember the great triumph that we have in Christ who defeated our ultimate trouble, which gives us all the reason and more to trust in you, our Heavenly Father, for the gracious gift you've given us. We know that you are good. We know that you don't give us what we want, but what we need. And so there's no reason whatsoever to worry about a single thing in life because we know that we are invincible until the day you call us home. And so Lord, may it be that we as a church live this way. That we don't live for the things of this world. That we don't live as practical atheists. But may we live as sons and daughters of the King. Who have all things, including your one and only Son. The precious blood of Christ which was spilt for us all. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our closing song? Give me Jesus.